Today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. If you're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player, Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling and this is the show that I produce in Sydney, Australia. Thank you so much for joining me. Now today for episode number 206, I am joined by Nashville-based guitar tech, Chad Wynn. Now this episode by itself is an amazing insight into the Gibson factory where Chad worked for many years and the world of uh, teching in general, which is really cool. But there's a really great connection between today's episode and episode number 202, where we had the iconic Gibson oddballs discussed by myself and co-hosts Rob and Gabor. And we chose some of the kookier kind of Gibsons that have emerged over the years. One of those was the Firebird X, and as a result of some of the prep I was doing for that show, Chad actually got in touch with me and said, hey man, I actually worked on the Firebird X. And from there I thought, man, I've got to get Chad on the show and talk all about it. So we're going to jump into that conversation very soon. But if you haven't checked out episode 202, discussing the our favorite Gibson oddballs, I'll leave a link in the show notes. All right, let's just jump straight in. Great conversation with Chad Wynn, talking about Gibson stuff. Chad Wynn, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Hey, thanks, Matt. I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> Great to have you. Great to have you. Now, I loved how we met up uh, over over Instagram, I think it was, when when I started posting about some, well, what, what I was calling Gibson oddball guitars, and it turns out you were at the Gibson factory, if I've got the dates right, 2010 to 2016. What, what yes. were you doing professionally up to that point that led you to work at Gibson? Um. Honestly, it was my non-professional work that helped me get into Gibson. Okay. Uh, just from uh, I was working kind of musician jobs in kitchens, uh, grocery stores, whatnot. But I'd been playing some music uh, in Denver, where I was living at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really didn't love playing music that much, but I loved instruments a lot, oh, and I okay. just had such an interest in uh, how they worked and taking care of them and maintaining them. And so much of that information is available online and in libraries and in books and magazines and whatnot. So uh, at some point, I just kind of stopped playing out and uh, started working on all my friends' instruments and took off from there. Uh, when I moved to, to Nashville, um, it gave me the opportunity to apply for Gibson. And I just was very dogged in my, in, in my efforts. And uh, they, they brought me on board. And uh, I'm always grateful for it. That's awesome. That's great. So you get a job at Gibson. What was your first job there? 
My first job was in final assembly and I stayed in final assembly the, the full six years I was there. And it was great. It's exactly the job you want to have when you work at Gibson. Uh-huh. You you walk into the department and there's just uh, rows of 20 racks of guitars that are just husks, just necks and bodies that are glistening straight from buffing <laughs> and beautiful. Awesome. It's it's like looking on a harvest of Gibsons. It's great. <laughs> and uh, you get to put all the parts on them, the all the fun parts, the the tuners, the the pickups and all the wiring and bits and string them up and hear them for the first time, which is awesome. Yeah, wow. That's super cool. So are you like are you signing off? Have you got any initials on any guitars? Uh, or, no. Or was it more uh, more the paperwork it was, side, uh, I guess? But yeah. It was uh, it was definitely the assembly line process. Yeah, you yeah. know, it was uh, assembling an instrument broken down into yeah. multiple steps, and um, you sign off on it at your workstation. You yeah. know, but when it when it leaves, it has the the card from QC, whoever signed off on okay, it there, okay. and that's kind of the official signature from Gibson. Wow, nice. But uh, you know, this was final assembly is right before QC. You have final assembly, and then it goes for a final cleaning. Mm-hmm. And then the final QC inspection. So okay. you're right there at the end of the line. So you get to see them all finished and it's, it's beautiful. Uh, nice. it, it was, it was always exciting to see that. Yeah. That's, that's the fun end of the process. Uh, it would be for me <laughs> anyway, the, the completed instrument. That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh yeah. It beats going home covered in sawdust. Yeah. yeah. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you're doing what the whole, the whole range of Gibson's like Les Paul's ES guitars. Well, this was when um, Gibson Memphis was still open. Oh, okay. Uh, so uh, Memphis did all of the hollow body electrics. Right, yeah. Nashville, which was Gibson USA, does all the solid body electrics. Okay. And then all the acoustics are done in Bozeman, Montana. Right. So uh, we had the full range of Les Pauls, SGs, Flying V's and Explorers. And, Rock and uh, roll. That's uh, cool. All the bases. Um, and while we, at, at the very end of 2011, I believe, was when the Gibson Midtown came out, which oh, okay. was a semi-hollow 335 style, but it yeah. was a flat top and back. So that came out of Nashville instead of Memphis. Oh, okay. I was going to say, did you avoid having to harness any semi-hollows, but maybe you had a couple of those Memphis ones to do? Well, uh, I'll tell you, actually, um, those models were coming out as we wrapped up the Firebird X project. So while we still had individual build stations in a separate part of the Gibson plant, we brought a lot of those midtowns back because it was the first time we had seen hollow body models going through the assembly process there. So it was pretty convenient to have a handful of us to kind of be the canaries to figure out what works and what doesn't as far as... uh, maintaining our assembly process but applying it to this new body shape and style Mm -hmm. and um man it was a great learning experience you know getting to to cut your teeth on wiring up hollow bodies on these brand new gibson models is a a pretty great experience that's cool man chad you're my hero already this out this is cool This is well, thank you, thank you. I mean, you just talked to Joe Satriani. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take it. You know, oh, man, he never tried to get a volume pot in a semi-hollow working. That's that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great, man. Hey, you mentioned the Firebird X, and that's that's one of the models we're going to talk about today. It was we named it as one of our Gibson oddballs uh, in a, in a recent episode because it's just 
as we were saying on that episode, if anyone hasn't heard it, like, I'd encourage people to check it out at some stage. So what, what we did there was a very affectionate look at some of the stranger instruments to come out of Gibson. I think we were pretty tame, actually. We, there was, there's plenty of other oddballs as well. Um, but, it's, yeah, it's, it was an affectionate look. We're not hating on Gibson or any other company that comes up with, with kooky stuff because every company has, every single one. But there's, there was just some really interesting models and um, just strange things that reflected the fashion of the day or the technology of the day or whatever was going on in the R&D department. So the Firebird X was certainly one of them, probably the more recent one, a guitar that had an amazing history and uh, marked a really, really interesting period in, in Gibson's history as well, I guess. So when did you first hear about this guitar, Chad? Um, you know, I, I, I listened to that episode about the, uh, the oddball Gibsons, and I loved it. Uh, I loved the whole collection of them, and I loved all your opinions and, and uh-huh. takes on them as well. It's, oh, cool. it's always fun to hear uh, other people's ideas and, and, and reactions to a lot mm-hmm. of these instruments. Um, so, and I also remember you talking about the timing, and I do recall that the the debut of the Firebird X was before I was working on it in final assembly. Okay, yeah. Um, the final assembly process being the the very end of the line, and for the Firebird X in particular, where we were was the absolute end of the line. These instruments were still making their way through the rough mill through finishing things like that through okay. uh, initial assembly after even after it had been kind of um, debuted you know and announced this was in august of uh, 2011 okay was when it was in the final assembly process uh, august through november was when they were actually put together um so uh one of the one of the, the the pictures I sent you was from this article in September 29th, 2011. And they say, uh, the super guitar is finally in our hands. Uh-huh. And I remember the final assembly process being a bit of, uh, you know, there being a little bit of pressure because uh, this instrument had been kind of debuted and unveiled and uh, people were really eager to get a hold of it. Yeah, yeah. So we we knew it was in the pipeline. We knew it was in the process but we were also still in final assembly and we were pretty busy with Les Pauls and SGs uh, until they were ready to pull a handful of us to go work on this assembly project. And um, uh, I hadn't been there too long, but um, you know, just shy of a year, I think. Uh, But man, I was pretty excited to, to be pulled off for, for, for that group for assembly. Yeah. Um, How how big was the team that, that was on the fiber Let's see. I want to say it was it was it was nine of us. There was uh, like six six people from Final Assembly, um, and then a couple people who worked sort of under special projects in the Final Assembly arena for uh, research and development. You know, they 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 kind of did a lot of the hands on things to help R and D uh, figure things out. And then we also had uh, our own QC guy who worked just on the Firebird X models because there was so much involved with them, with the foot pedals and the interface mm. and all these components that had to come together to sort of be this one collective of an instrument that uh, it took a lot, of, a lot of specialized knowledge to just be able to run through everything. Sure. And honestly, uh, this QC guy, he, he 
played every single one and checked them all out. Um, this one guy has more man hours in this instrument than <laughs> anyone else I can imagine. <laughs> That's huge. And what, um, what was your initial reaction? Because, yeah, this guitar was so different to anything else that had been offered by Gibson before. Just even the assembly, the final assembly must have been a mammoth undertaking when you look at all the circuit boards and the various switching. Like this is not like a, a, a it's not even like a triple pickup Les Paul custom or something, you know, which might have been the busiest guitar you would see otherwise. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was a totally new experience, and uh, it was just such a completely new and unique instrument for Gibson overall. I mean, it was an ash body with a maple neck. Yeah. So okay. from its very core, it was it was just fundamentally different and unique for, for Gibson to be doing this. Um, the assembly process was, was just kind of a learning process at all times as well. And it was unlike any other instrument I've worked on since. And, and frankly, if an instrument like it came across my workbench now, it would be pretty intimidating because there were so many things going on that were uh, vaguely familiar for guitar construction, but so many proprietary components that, were completely unique to that experience that, um, you know, I still haven't seen again, <laughs> um, but it was, it was, it was, it was fascinating. It was six of us who are all really excited to be there and to be working on this project and doing our absolute best to, to make these work as, as well as we could possibly, possibly make it. But it, it felt like everything was under development while we were still, putting it together. And I think that was kind of the long-term plan for the instrument. It was never really a, a single static concept. It was an instrument that was intended to grow and develop as software develops and as opportunities develop. And that was even um, kind of evident in how the instrument was assembled in different components of the instrument. It was, you know, this will be able to do this at some point. This will have the capability to do these things. And okay. That was, I thought that was awesome. That was exciting. And had you guys seen, um, I guess you'd seen a completed uh, version of the guitar. I guess you guys had a bit mm -hmm. of time before before you got to work to, to see what the guitar was about. What, what were your initial thoughts? Um, well, you know, uh, they, frankly, they weren't completely positive because it was just so new and so different. It was sure. uh, a little off putting, you know, we were seeing, uh, 300 Les Pauls and SGs a day. And, you know, that was what we knew for Gibson. So, yeah. um, I, I think Gibson is in a, a difficult place where everyone wants, you know, the 59, but they also, you know, they're, they're hungry for something new, but they want it to be classic and familiar at the yeah, same yeah. time. And that's a real difficult point to hit and a, a real difficult uh, comfort level for everyone to reach at the same point. Um, so it was, uh, I, I loved the paint job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I loved the colors. <laughs> I thought it looked great. Uh, I, I, I've always kind of blown away when I hear people's reactions where it's like, ah, I don't know about that paint job. <laughs> it's like, man, if you saw 20 of them lined up in a rack and saw how they were all just slightly yeah, different, yeah. Uh, it was it was great. It looked really cool. So this um, is, uh, was it Redolution <laughs> and Blue Dilution? Was that the... <laughs> Yeah, I uh, after I heard you say them, I had to Google it because I thought it was 
revolution and bluevolution. Okay. Like evolution was part of both yeah, of these, yeah, yeah. but no, it was it was red volution and blue. I can't even I remember okay. what it was now, but it was it was something that was a little <laughs> counterintuitive and kind of confusing, but sure. I guess appropriate now. Yeah, way. yeah. And the I think the the one that was debuted though was kind of orange. I think the one yeah, that, I that saw. one. It was kind of orange, and there's another one about the same generation. Where if you look at some videos closely, you'll see that it has these really beautiful block inlays oh, okay. that are like um, they kind of look like mother of pearl almost, but it's kind of got a green hue to it. And the fingerboard, it it doesn't seem to be maple. It might be torrified or something. Oh, okay. but there's something a little bit different about it. And yeah. and that orange with that slightly darker fingerboard, with those block inlays, yeah. um, I thought was really sharp. You know, yeah, and yeah. the shape is a little, yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly unique, but it is uh, Firebird adjacent. I yeah, call it, yeah, yeah. You know, okay. So it's 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 kind of comfortable. You know, I mean, I thought that they were very comfortable to sit and to hold with. Okay, um, yeah. They just sat very well physically on your lap, and the proportion was extremely comfortable for sitting. And um, I, I think that's you know part of the. Uh, I think part of the intent of the whole instrument was that it was an all-in-one um, recording tool. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, I, all the ads are, you know, on stage and rocking out and, yeah. you know, fan and hair and all that. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> but um, it, really with the foot pedals, the interface, the way that it was updated, the way that it worked with software, it seemed like they, they kind of missed a, a huge audience of if you're just sitting at home and recording and you want every guitar available to you just right in your lap, mm-hmm. this is it. You know, that's what we're, that's what we we're going for. Um, well, I say that's what we we're going for, but th- I think that's what they were going for. I was just putting it together. <laughs> so when you're working on the Firebird, is there any type of non-disclosure or any type of contractual agreement you have with Gibson um, like, is it secretive, the work you're doing? This is back when you're at the factory. Is there any sense of secretive? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it kind of felt more like just having a, a healthy respect for what we were doing yeah. and not wanting to, um, I don't know, it, it didn't feel like there would be any value in going on to like an internet forum and talking about it or anything. Yeah, sure. Um, and they were they were pretty strict about, you know, don't don't take out your cell phones and take pictures or some of the stuff that we were doing and um that was kind of throughout the facility as a whole Um, okay they don't do public tours but while i worked there i was able to you know ask some of my supervisors and they brought a friend of mine and my wife through the factory for a tour on our day off which was great and we're able to see a lot of the things but in places like finishing they really say you know please don't don't take any pictures or anything back here And, um, you know, that's, that's understandable, but with the Firebird X in particular, uh, while it was something that in the factory we knew, uh, I think there were still just kind of rumors out in the rest of the world okay. about what it was or what was coming. So, um, while, while we didn't feel any, uh, huge rush to, to post pictures of it any place, nobody really even knew what questions to ask. Yeah, so, sure. There wasn't much of a temptation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So with the instrument, there's obviously it gets released into the wild. It has a, a fairly short lifespan um, for ver- various reasons. 
But for you, and before we hit record, you were saying, you know, there's there's a lot of great things about the the Firebird X. What what for you are the um the standout features of that instrument? Man, I still think about tog pots. <laughs> <laughs> so the tog pot, the toggle potentiometer. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were three three-way switches on the Firebird X. Yeah. And each three-way switch, um, first off, they they felt great. They felt like really high quality um, three-way blade switches where it doesn't feel like a spring or tension loaded switch. It, it felt like there was smooth contact at all times, but the switch still set, uh, settled really well into the detented position. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, there was a very firm, powerful switch about it. And they're also potentiometers. So you would turn them just like you would a volume or a tone pot. And they would have that sweep effect, but they would still function as a three-way switch at the same time. What? I did not know this. <laughs> so I could see it hit you right there. I saw it oh, like, just kind of blew you away. It How did. amazing is that? So hang on. So I'm toggling my three-way. And then if I like twist the, the, the tip, that, that's a pot. Yes. yes. Mind blown. <laughs> so this guitar had three of those mounted okay. on the top. Okay. And in um let's see I'm trying to remember the order of the switches but there was blue, red and gray. Yeah. And I believe that um blue or red one or the other would be a modulation effect. Okay. It would have reverb or flange delay things like that. The other one would have uh, distortion I think it might have had a gate on it or something, but you could control the wet dry mix with the potentiometer portion of the tog okay. pot. And you wow. could change the effect with the toggle control. So that's just a, a crazy number of options out of those three switches. Wow. And you still have a five way blade switch uh-huh. with a volume pot, a tone pot, and the gear shift knob, which mm-hmm. was the one that lit up and looked really cool yeah, in yeah. front of the Firebird X. But the tog pots, I still think about, and I <laughs> still, like, I don't understand why I don't see them on more instruments. They were, yeah. they were phenomenal. They felt great. They worked great. Uh-huh. They could be wired up without having uh, special connections. They were solder connections. Okay. Um, okay. And I don't know where they are. <laughs> wow. Wow. That could be a whole thing. That's a whole thing right, right? there. Mad, crazy. All right. Mad. Well, what else? What else on the Firebird was, was taking the you boxes know, the, for you? Um, the bridge and the tailpiece were huge, uh, huge components of the instrument. Like, I mean, I, I guess that's kind of a foolish thing to say about a guitar, but in particular on the Firebird X, because the bridge had the piezo pickup mounted in it. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was crucial for the tuning and everything, but the tailpiece itself, instead of having um, two studs that the tailpiece locked onto like a traditional Les Paul, uh-huh. uh, if you look at some of the close-ups, even there's a great picture on Gibson's website, they still have the specs up for the Firebird Axe. Oh, okay. And under the section for bridge, uh, it shows that the the studs for the tailpiece are built into the bridge itself and they're adjusted on the top with an allen head okay, uh, okay. screw mm-hmm. so the the amount of coupling you're getting from having the bridge and uh, the tailpiece and the post being one unit um 
yeah, it was, I don't know. It, it felt very clean. It felt very effective. Yeah. Um, it, it felt very sturdy and rigid adjustment when you're using a flathead screwdriver instead of the proper tool, yeah. you're more likely to slip and whatnot, but this has the Allen head wrench in it. Um, I, I just loved that level of coupling and, uh, minimizing the number of components to have more contact at all times. And that's something I'm kind of surprised that I haven't seen on more models of just any brand is having built-in uh, studs for your tailpiece. Yeah. Um, but that was something I liked a lot about the Firebird X. Um, the Nutric Jack was something that you could find on Les Paul standards of the time. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure if they're on Les Pauls now still, but that's something you find on pedal boards a lot. Yeah. But for a locking output jack, it was great, you know, functioned great. It had uh, full contact. It was easy to solder. And uh, man, they're bulletproof. They lasted forever. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I mean, even even just those simple things. Well, not simple, but s- small things are a big deal on, on the internet. Oh, yeah. Every, everything I've read and the couple of people I've spoken to have actually played a, a Firebird they all rave about the neck. That's interesting. That's interesting. The, um, the neck had a satin nitrocellulose finish to mm-hmm. it. And I remember that it was a special profile. And as I recall, it, it felt kind of like a flatter C radius to me. Okay. Um, it, it didn't feel, I don't know, it didn't feel traditionally Gibson. Um, it did feel kind of more fendery, but um, it, it was still perhaps wider than a Strat neck normally feels. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, um, on a like an, on an opinion level, I didn't love the neck profile. Okay. It wasn't yeah. my favorite. I'm a big fan of the asymmetrical neck profile that was on standards of the time okay. or the, the 50s profile that's a little bit beefier, but it was definitely not uncomfortable it was a neck that i don't think anyone would play it and be offended by it or find it difficult to maneuver Mm -hmm. but i don't know that it was a neck profile that was um striking enough to be really memorable or um convincing you know it's not like if you're a soft v player and the first time you play a soft v neck and you just sort of like whoa i get it that that kind of locks it in for me i didn't feel like this neck had the the dynamic profile that would really be um kind of blowing me away but it was comfortable and um uh, and even from the seated position the the amount of access that you had to the upper register all 23 frets 23 um, <laughs> yep noted <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> why? Okay, but we'll, we'll just we'll, we'll just move on. But uh, it, you did have great access, and it was it, it was a comfortable neck. But I don't remember it being, um, you know, really mind blowing for me. Okay, okay. Any, anything else on it that that you really loved? Ah oh, man, um, I really like the headstock shape. Okay. And I know that that's not a popular opinion, <laughs> but uh, again, Gibson's in a hard place. They have the most classic, iconic headstock yeah. shape. Yeah. So any place you go from there, uh, somebody's going to be disappointed. Yeah. Um, the they were they were incredibly light, incredibly light instruments for all the hardware, for mm-hmm. all the the chromed metal plates that we attached to the front and everything. 
they, 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 I mean, they were almost hollow because they had to have so much room for all the circuitry to fit inside. There was a circuit board with just a web of wires coming off it that we fed through the entire body to get all the components in there. And you can see great pictures online of people taking the back plates off and there's just, you can see um, the tog pots, you can see the, the familiar uh, electronics, the five-way blade switch, but then you see the circuit board or the the box that it's held inside yeah, uh, yeah. things that look like uh, you opened up the back of the computer, you know, but uh, so there's, you know, definitely familiar things there, but yeah. uh, some oddness. Um, but yeah, uh, I love the paint jobs. Um, the, the acoustic sound, uh, I think it was the J45 setting. Um, I, you could plug in a J45 and a Firebird X set to a J45 and have a real hard time telling them apart. Wow. And that wow. blew my mind. That was really something else. Um, I don't remember like the J200 setting or the SJ or something like that. But when we ran through the instruments after we assembled them and strung them up, uh, you know, everyone kind of had a few go-to settings that they would go to that they were familiar with mm -hmm. and they knew how it would react to help test each one to make sure that they worked well. Uh, one of mine was the J45 setting. Okay. and. Man, it just sounded incredible. It really sounded great. This episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, a comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott, ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and the McNally Smith College of Music. I was one of the beta testers for the course and can say as a music educator, I was really impressed by the logical sequence of learning. The course has also been endorsed by players such as Brett Garson and Greg Cobb. For more details, check out the links in our show notes. It's funny you mention this. It's, it's one thing not everyone talks about with this guitar, and it's how it actually sounds, which is bizarre mm. when you think about it. <laughs> what, what about, um, oh, yeah, let's talk about how it sounds. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, man. I've, uh, you know, uh, I've got a great story about how it sounds. Yeah. Uh, while we were in production for the, the Firebird X model, um, we had started shipping them out to stores. So we were still finishing out the production run, but they were hitting stores. They were hitting the market. Uh, you know, uh, that article I mentioned from September, we were building them through the end of October. So mm -hmm. we still had them coming out of the factory. Yeah. Um, I had family come into town to visit. And I was telling them all about this wild guitar mm -hmm. and uh, they were non-musicians, non-guitar players, yeah. but I just had to show them. Yeah. So we went to a Sam Ash uh, here in Nashville that I knew had a couple of the Firebird X models in yeah. it. And uh, I brought them in and went up to the counter and just said, look, you know, I, I work there. I just want to show my family what, what this thing is. Do you, do you mind if I, I grab one of those, and just sit down with it? And it was behind the counter. Mm -hmm. So the guy was nice enough to grab one and hand it to me. And I went over and sat down and they asked if I wanted the foot pedals, but honestly, I have no idea how to use the foot okay, pedals. Okay. Came with it. So there was no need in that. And I just sat down with the guitar and went through a few of the sounds, some of the delays and the acoustic sound and some of the natural sounds, and then showed them how it tuned itself and how the tuning system worked. And they were kind of watching and nodding and laughing but they kept looking behind me and i turned around and there were three sam ash employees kind of watching over my shoulder because mm -hmm. they were curious how the damn thing worked okay. as well <laughs> <laughs> but um for all the reviews i read about it online and i still check them every now and then yeah. out of curiosity so many of them start with 
Um, well, I haven't played it, yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, they 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 sounded really neat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they the natural sound was really interesting. The pickups were an Alnico three, five, and ceramic. Okay, so you had this massive range from the pickups that were on board already. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were mini humbuckers, but I don't remember exactly how they were made, if they were like Firebird style, if they were traditional mini humbuckers. But um, from from the outset, it was, you know, three, three pretty diverse pickups uh, that you got a good range of sound out of. Mm-hmm. Um, the onboard effects, you know, the distortions were, um, I, I thought, Okay. Politely. Okay. okay. <laughs> they, 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 they weren't so much for me. Um, yeah. But uh, some of the modulation effects, uh, I think if you had just had some, some time to sit with it, you could dial through them because there were so many EQ options on it and so many different ways to change the sound and the signal chain yeah. that uh, I think that there was just, if you wanted the sound, it could be there. But it, there's just a big learning curve in finding it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that was part of the problem as well. It's just there was, there was so much coming at you as a guitarist all at once yeah. that it was kind of hard to just say, well, how do I just run through only the distortions and find the sound that I like? Okay. And how do I tweak just that sound? It was without having the full interface and the pedals and everything. I don't think the editing... Uh, you know capabilities were as accessible and so it just wasn't it wasn't right there at your fingertips it took a little more work to get through sure and uh i don't know that anyone really had the opportunity to to spend that much time with it you know i could imagine somebody taking one into a studio for six weeks and coming out afterwards and saying okay i i really feel comfortable right i really know where we can go so it needed a real commitment to to get the most out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I just don't know if I was, uh, if I was ready to commit that amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, but yeah, it, it came with, you know, it, it came with the interface for the computer. It came with the foot pedals that were two independent pedals. Um, they came with the special cables, with the computer programs. Uh, it came with the software updates and, uh, all the intention in the world of, of future capabilities. Um, and I think that that was, that's just a lot to have in one package and a lot to ask of, uh, you know, a community of guitar players who haven't really seen the first few steps of this and now to have it all at once. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I it, 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 to me, it almost kind of felt like the capabilities of a, of a recording studio put in your lap and I'm just a, a living room guy, you yeah. know, I don't really need, I don't need all that. So once once it's released, there's a lot of um, obviously a lot of attention. The the launch with with Henry Juskowitz itself, of course, got a lot of attention. And then it seemed like it was it was really at that time when companies were starting to uh, understand internet marketing. So there were on launch date, the, the guitars were in the hands of a lot of YouTubers and um, and people like that that were. Um, able to demo the guitar. So there's a lot of people talking about the guitar, presenting it. Ultimately, obviously, the guitar had a short lifespan in the public, uh, 
in its availability. What what was your reaction to that? Um, you know, uh, it, it was disappointing. Uh, being completely honest, you know, uh, uh, I uh, I was excited for it, but I was quite reserved. Okay, uh, I think everyone was quite reserved. Yeah, I, I don't know that it was the instrument uh, intended for any of us in particular, but I know that in spending three months of uh, really, you know, we worked six days a week, 12 hours a day on this project, and we were just solely focused on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we just had so much invested in it after at the end of that time that yeah. we all kind of wanted to see it be successful. Yeah, But sure. we all... Um, we were being realistic, you know, and uh, we're all guitar players and living room guys. And we kind of knew what we were looking for. And we also knew that this, this, this kind of wasn't it for us. So we weren't sure how other okay. people would receive it as well. Okay. Um, plus, you know, with us, uh, you know, we, we were in it up to our elbows and there were things about it that, um, you know, the foot pedals, uh, the software, there were things that we didn't understand. So how could yep. we expect people just in the public singing for the first time to be able to kind of grasp everything that, uh, that it had to offer, mm-hmm. uh, in a, in a reasonable way, you know? Sure. Yep. So your, your span there at Gibson 2010, 2016, a really interesting time in, in Gibson history. Um, <laughs> it is. quite, quite famously, uh, 2018, uh, you know the 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 different stages of bankruptcy are, are negotiated, and and ultimately the company comes comes out of it, which uh, I think everyone's happy about, of course, to see uh, this amazing guitar company uh, continue on. I don't think anyone wanted to see see that finish up. But what's what's the vibe? What's the vibe in the company when you were there, at least? Um, you know, it was it was a really difficult time for the company. Um, I've told, uh, you know, friends or people that I've met the, the time span that I was there and, uh, I've heard people chuckle and kind of refer to it as the dark years. Uh-huh. And, uh, I, I hope that I had nothing to do with that, but I'm almost <laughs> grateful I left when I did. So that okay. things would, uh, write themselves over there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was, uh, it was a hard time in particular for, uh, even the city of Nashville. It was right after floods had really devastated the city. And Gibson itself was uh, digging out and repairing from all this damage. Um, Even when I left, there were still uh, pieces of tape around some of the legs of the benches in final assembly, marking how high the water was during the flood. Okay. And uh, that was pretty striking. I, uh, on a personal level, I moved to Nashville immediately after the flood. And I was confused when I was reading, uh, postings for for houses for rent that they were uh, advertising that they had all new lower cabinets okay. and i thought that was a really weird feature to advertise yeah, the kitchen yeah, yeah. until i appreciated that they were houses that had been flooded and were now empty gotcha um so when i came on in 2010 there was a a very large staffing push to kind of uh you know regroup at the factory and get back to where gibson was before the flood so there was uh, a lot of work to be done, a lot of uh, ground to be made up. And uh, we did it with a lot of hours. And it was hard, but um, man, having having your hands on that many great American guitars uh, is just a level of experience that you can really only get at the Gibson factory. Uh-huh. Um, you know, handling that many Les Pauls, uh, I 
yeah, I've I've never been intimidated by working on a Gibson since then. But mm-hmm. uh, part of that's because I know what I'm, what I'm stepping into, and I understand what you know the quality level of the instrument to begin with. So it's it was a great experience, but it was definitely a hard time for the company. You know, um, the Firebird X was kind of the the apparently the last of this lineage of uh, instruments that you guys had mentioned on the the previous the uh, other Gibson Oddities episode about. Uh, the Dusk Tiger mm-hmm. uh, and the Robot Guitar, things like that. Those okay. were just uh, evolutionary steps of this technology and the Robo uh, Robo Tuners Mini Tune technology that just progressed. By the time it hit the Firebird X, it was like the fourth generation or third generation, perhaps. Maybe fourth was the year 2015 when all the models had Mini Tune systems mm-hmm. mounted on them. And they changed the uh, fingerboard width and they changed the nut uh, and uh, just kind of made sweeping changes across the board, which was also, you know, uh, a lot of people have marked as a, a, a changing point in Gibson as a company and uh, uh, Henry's uh, leadership as, you know, overall. But, uh, you know, I, I think... Um, I think, you know, we had talked a little bit before we started recording about how Gibson has always uh, broken new ground and always pushed the boundaries and how the guitar community as a whole has really reaped the benefits of the P90 and the humbucker and all these great things yeah, that Gibson absolutely. has brought. And uh, man, the the amount of, of pressure to push forward and progress and come up with new ideas and break new ground um, has to be monumental for, for a company like that at all times. So, uh, you know, if you're going to do it, you know, let's, let's go all in. Mm -hmm. And then they had 2015 and go all in with the tuners, the new, the new features and make this statement and they're bold moves that, um, when they're successful, you know, uh, it's, you know, you get, you get all the praise, but, when it doesn't work and they don't always work, um, I, you know, you have these almost forgotten guitars. <laughs> yeah, amazing. And it's, I keep using the word fascinating. It's because it's, uh, it's in all spheres of life as well. Like you think of a rock band, a classic rock band. Are they going to, are they going to reproduce the formula that got them popular? You know, there's that tension there or a, a film franchise. I love Star Wars. Um, <laughs> man, I don't, I don't know which community is more divisive. Talking about guitars online or, or Star Wars, but same. Man, I'll stick to the guitars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anytime you're trying to innovate, that like you said, there's that tension, isn't there, that um, can go a couple of ways. Really, oh, yeah. really interesting. Ch- Chad, b- before we, we wind up, I- I'd love to give you the chance to join in the Gibson Oddball conversation as well. Um, you, I know you've mentioned uh, you're a fan of the Gibson Sonics. Do you want, oh man? Do you want to tell me what you love about that guitar? And the rule is um, the rule we had for our show uh, with Robin Gabor was you have to kind of visually describe the instrument so people. I mean, we can all look up the picture, of course. But oh if, yes, yes, I would love to describe the Gibson Sonics. <laughs> the the Gibson Sonics. Let's see if I remember. I think it was 1980 to 1984, mm-hmm. and they had the Sonics 180 Deluxe which I believe was the baseline model. So 
you know, it's the deluxe is where you start, which yeah, lets nice. you know that you're, you're headed in a good direction. <laughs> at that point. Uh, and they had like a 180 artist or a Sonics artist. I, I think it went on from there, mm-hmm. but they had, uh, you know, black and white, red and a silver burst finish. But uh, the thing about these guitars is that they were bolt on neck Gibsons which right off just throws you on a, yeah. on a huge loop. They were Les Paul uh, body shapes, but they were not carved. They were flat like uh, specials or, uh, you know, melody makers or yeah, something. Yeah. They had a, a heavy round over to the body. So it was a very slim, heavily rounded, single cutaway, bolt on neck, um, melody maker style uh you know, uh, pickups and electronics and, and uh, controls all mounted to the pick guard and just slapped into this huge swimming pool route on the uh-huh. body. Um, and, and now you get to the weird part. <laughs> so the, the logo on the Sonics um, is a completely bizarre Gibson logo that they didn't use on any other model. It's this very ornate, old-fashioned gold script that almost has kind of a, a badge behind it. And they also put this logo on the hard shell cases that the Sonics came with. And those cases are absolutely beautiful, man. I love looking at those yeah. cases. Uh, And to top it all off, the Gibson Sonics was made with a proprietary material called resin wood, Mm -hmm. which as far as we can tell is a combination of sawdust and glue molded (laughs) around a solid mahogany block that was the core of the Gibson Sonics. Uh, One of the selling points was the extreme temperatures that the resin wood body could withstand, <laughs> which is always a feature I look for in a guitar. Yes. Um, I want to be able to hold a blowtorch to it and know <laughs> that while the nitro finish may not survive, that resin wood is not going anywhere. <laughs> um, man, they were so cool. The oh, 180 had uh, <laughs> affectionately referred to velvet brick humbuckers, mm-hmm. which uh, you know uh, have the subtlety of a brick wrapped in velvet. Uh, some of them had. Uh, Shaw humbuckers in them, and some of them had very early Dirty Fingers. Oh, okay. So they were hot guitars. Yeah. They were uh, loud. They were rocking. They were heavy. Yeah. And uh, man, they looked great. I had never heard of them until I moved to Nashville. And since moving to Nashville, I've owned two of them. And nice. uh, I think one of them I bought for uh, $150 after uh i was talked up from 125 because he had two of us willing okay. to pay okay. 125 <laughs> for a gibson sonics Far that right. was at least 10 years ago mm-hmm. um but man they're awesome they were in the same family as the gibson uh let's see i think it was the s335 the solid 335 oh, okay. which was uh, a double cutaway uh flat you know flat top and back body mm-hmm. And, uh, man, it was, it was right around, I think the M three as well, which was the shredder, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. locking nut Floyd Rose angular, but very beautiful, you know, yeah. neck through, you know, great guitars, but man, I, I, uh, I, I had a Sonics, let's see, uh, the first one that I had, uh, I kept it for a while and put it up for sale. And uh, a guy told me he was going to start collecting oddball Gibsons. Okay. And he was nice. starting with the Sonics. And I said, well, man, that's a great one to start with. And good luck. <laughs> and don't hurt your back. And uh, I saw him, let's see, probably a month later at a guitar show. And he was walking around with a Gibson gig bag that looked familiar. And I 
caught eyes with him and he very sheepishly said, man, it's just really heavy. And I said, I get it. (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's my nomination is the Gibson Sonics deluxe or Sonics 180 deluxe. They had a bunch of names, but uh, man, just the bolt on Gibson with the weird logo and they're great fun guitars. That's awesome. I'm going to start, um, I'm going to start Googling that. After this conversation, <laughs> I'll never look at some more Sonics guitars. That's cool, man. Thank you for that contribution. <laughs> Loved it. Oh, man. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I was I, I love talking about these oddball Gibsons and uh, having a bunch of Firebird X experience. I'm, I'm happy to share that. But just uh, just these casual encounters with a, a Sonics 180 or a Sonics Deluxe, man, the, the, they're out there and you can find them. And, uh, man, they're fun. Don't don't be afraid of the Bolton Gibson. It's a good time. <laughs> That's great. That's great, Chad. Chad, you also alluded to um, your own work. So, you, you know, you're running your three benches um, with, a, with a small team. What's uh, How can people find you if they're in Nashville and they need some love <laughs> given to their man. instrument? Well, uh, you know, I, I pretty much just live on Instagram nowadays. Yep. Uh, that's just such a fun place to post pictures and see everyone's work and uh, be able to share ideas and just bounce things off each other. Uh, There's a really great community of guitar people on there. Mm -hmm. And uh, my whole Instagram feed is pretty much just guitar work. Um, So I'm on Instagram at CWINSTRINGS, C-W-I-N-N strings. And uh, if you ever need anything, just reach out to me there. Cool. Um, and uh, let me post pictures of your guitar on uh, Instagram. <laughs> That's great, man. The, um, I love that page too because you're, you're showing all the oh, mods and, and repairs and things you're doing. What's thanks. Um... There's, uh, there's just so many fun things that happen to uh, guitars that um, – they all don't. They don't all have to be, uh, you know, the big fancy vintage ones. Uh, it's the everyday players that are really exciting and fun to uh, check out and really get behind. Yeah, um, guitar players are sometimes tinkerers. Sometimes tinker beyond their skill level. I I may uh, fall into that category sometimes. Um, what's have you got any memorable guitars that you've you've had to rescue from the hands of their their owners? Oh boy, boy, what a great question. I um <laughs> I worked retail repair at both Guitar Center and Sam Ash. Okay. Uh which is incredibly valuable experience to have when working on guitars because the cross section of people you meet is wonderful and you do see these wild situations. I remember one in particular was um one of a a, a national player, a guy who played down on Broadway. And man, these guys will play a two or three hour gig and grab something to eat as they run across the street to go play another three hour gig. And it blows my mind that they're just up there with an acoustic guitar pulling it off. Um, except for this guy's case, he had a, a great Taylor acoustic that has the input in the uh, strap button on uh, the end pin. Yeah. And I think that probably somebody stood on the cable or something happened that it pulled the input jack itself loose. So while he, he told me while he was on Broadway after his gig, right before he ran to his next gig, he tried to get it to stay in place by putting a little super glue on it and cranking it into the body. Uh-huh. But he had it cross threaded. So the jack went in at an angle. And for the entire next gig, he said that he had to 
tape his cable up to his guitar <laughs> strap and lean into it so that people yeah. could hear his guitar come through the system. And I guess he played for a couple hours like that and pulled it off. So hats off to that guy. But yeah. um, <laughs> man, getting his jack undone from the guitar just ended up being a real mess with uh, anything I tried to use. So um, the, the, the manager at Sam Ash was great. And I was trying to pull an input out of uh, one of our guitars inventory to see if we could just swap it out so that he could keep working and keep playing. Uh, And his was a bit older, so we didn't have anything that matched. So uh, I just got on the phone with Taylor and I explained to them what was going on and what we had and exactly what we needed. And one thing I found is that a lot of these companies, if you just call them and explain, you know, hey, I'm a repair guy. I'm here in Nashville. I'm trying to help this guy out. Uh, Man, they'll do everything they can to help you out. And Taylor sent a a great replacement part uh, directly to me at the store and I was able to put it in. But but um, the bummer was that uh, this particular musician learned the value of having a backup guitar. Yeah, so right. <laughs> he ended up uh, making a new guitar purchase at the time while he was waiting. Nice. Uh, but uh, win win. You know, he, he, <laughs> yeah, he, he got uh, guitars that worked and everything was fine, but Taylor was great. That's cool. Um, That's really cool. I, I, I remember another one um, where, uh, real short and sweet. Uh, the guy had bought a guitar, a nice Schecter with a Floyd Rose and uh, brought it home and started tinkering. And he brought it back to me a week later and he handed me the guitar case. And then he handed me the Floyd Rose that was in a plastic Ziploc bag. Okay. Uh, just a jumble of pieces. And I just kind of looked at it and said, man, I remember this last week. It was a great guitar. What happened? And he said, well, I started tuning it and then I tried to make the strings lower and then I just started pulling on springs and then this happened. And uh, so I got to put his brand new Floyd Rose back together and assemble it back onto the guitar. Okay, (laughs) Uh, man. And that was another one where there were some stripped out parts that uh, I got in touch with Schechter and they mailed them directly to me. And uh, the only thing they said was, uh, please let him know that while we're taking care of him, what he did was in no way covered in any <laughs> warranty that we ever offered. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, hats off to the guy because he was a player and a really good player. And he just wanted to uh, get into the, the nuts and bolts of his guitar a little more. But um, he just had a little bit too much enthusiasm. Okay. <laughs> so once it was all put back together, I, I showed him where everything goes on the inside before I put the plate back on the, you know, the cover back on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I didn't see him again. So I guess everything worked out okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That is great. I love those stories. Hey, Chad, thank you so much. I've loved chatting with you today. I've been looking forward to it, actually, for the last couple of weeks, too. So, so nice to meet you and and talk about this stuff. Well, this was a blast, man, and I hope that I uh, didn't just go off too much. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, just really exciting. I love the podcast. I love hearing the stuff that you do. And uh, I just had a a real good time, and I'm really excited about talking to talking about things like this. There you go, Chad Wynn on the Guitar Speak podcast. Man, what an insightful peek behind the curtain of Gibson and some great stories. And you heard it here first, guys. Gibson Sonics, grab one while you can. What was it? Resin glass? Resin wood? Awesome, man. So cool. So cool. All right, check out Chad's Insta. It's C Win Strings. I'll put a link in the show notes, but he's always posting cool stuff. 
Hey, my thanks to Fretboard Biology for supporting the show. Check out their links as well. And as usual, I'm going to leave you with the, the wisdom from Michael Schenker because you know what he told us. Keep rocking. Keep on rocking. <laughs>